Welcome to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Your host, Jesse Jameson, has a real treat for you. You are about to hear a great story. And if Jesse brings his A-game, some good commentary too. And later on, we'll let you know how you can join Jesse as a guest. Now, without further ado, here's Jesse. Welcome back to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Today's friend is Jim from Los Angeles. And the title of Jim's story is Teenage Killer. You know, Jim, when I was in high school, my nickname was Teenage Lady Killer. No, not really. Anyway, thank you for being on the show. Jim, the floor is yours. Jesse, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time you've taken to contact me, invite me on your show, and I am thrilled to be a guest on your show. So let me ask you this, Teenage Killer, give us a little background on what you do in life that would make it where you would have a story about a teenage killer. I was, as most Americans, were alarmed not so long ago when there were shootings on high school campuses, multiple shootings on high school campuses, and kids were injured, but kids were also the perpetrators of those shootings. And often it was a kid, and I say the word kid meaning juvenile, who was known by the student body in campus. There hasn't really been a shooting where somebody who's unknown to the school comes on campus. Usually it's someone who was known, who was not liked, who was not invited into social groups on campus, didn't run for academic senate or treasury, that kind of thing where, you know, you can do elective positions at a high school. Somehow was depressed, somehow felt alienated, somehow felt isolated, and that bothered me. So when I was at the university, I asked if I could interview for my doctorate degree, because I was in a doctoral program. If I would interview, could interview kids who had killed if I got permission from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. My doctoral advisor wasn't enthusiastic. As a matter of fact, he said, Jim, uh, why don't you why don't you do a, you know, a simple math PhD and we'll help you along. And he made a sweeping gesture with his hand. Like you won't have to worry about it. We'll, we'll take care of you. And I, I didn't want that. That felt insulting. I wanted to do some old fashioned roll your sleeves up research. Was there a piece of you that was fascinated by the murderer's mindset? Because sometimes I watch these shows about, you know, how to kill your husband or how not to kill your wife or this, that, and the other. And I find them fascinating because me, myself, I have a hard time seeing how somebody can want to kill another human being. But at the same time, I remember when I went to school, I graduated high school in 1995, Jim, there were some kids that were alienated, that were kind of treated like second-class citizens. And, you know, sometimes you just have that straw that breaks the camel's back and I could see how somebody might fly off the end and do something horrible, uh, although it's unfortunate. I can see how that can happen. Was there a piece of you that was maybe fascinated by the, the murderer's mindset or the killer's mindset? I was terrified because I had been a teacher. See, my, my first career was at a, as a teacher, a licensed California teacher. And I taught high school. I also taught middle school, and I could actually see, as I'm sure other teachers around the nation could see, a different kind of social setting in school. You had the haves, the have-nots. You had the athletes and the not-so-good kids who are good in the sense of being, you know, um, athletic, athletically inclined. I wasn't as fascinated as I was alarmed. 
When I got out of teaching, I then worked for a county office of education where I worked in uh, educational television. I used to produce educational television. And then I went into public school law for the uh, county agency. And my concern grew even more when I got an opportunity to uh, become admitted and apply to a doctoral program at a university, I felt that what I was seeing and interpreting on school campuses nationwide, that would legitimate doctoral research. That would basically kind of authenticate the kind of research I was proposing. I did not get a you know, uh, mutual enthusiasm from my doctoral advisor. So I tried another university. They did not ask questions. They immediately understood the social impact of what was taking place on campuses nationwide, but also the possibility of a researcher contributing something. Can you so give us an idea of what year this was? Was this 80s, 90s, early 2000s? This was the early 90s. I was in the doctoral program from 1993 to 1997. And this was in the L.A. area? The um, Inland Empire, the school I went to was the Claremont Graduate University. That was my, the second school I applied at. And what they state were, was that? California. California. In, so wasn't yeah. California in the 80s and 90s, wasn't there a lot of problems with, with gangs and stuff in the school as well? Exactly. Gangs in the school. But it's interesting. It wasn't. I'll put it this way. It was rare to have a gang member commit a homicide on campus. It was mostly kids who were disassociated from their families, who felt alienated from the other kids, who felt that they spent six and seven hours a day away from their families. And yet when they were away from their families, it was worse. Nothing got better. So they would return home. So they, they were caught between, you know, caught in the box canyon, no matter where they turned metaphorically speaking, it was disheartening. They were in despair. They felt alienated and isolated. And when I went on a book tour after my, I did a doctoral dissertation. And then from that, that became a framework for my book, Jack and Jill, Why They Kill. And often people ask, oh, you know, you, you interviewed some gang members. Um, they were really causing problems. Gang members were causing problems around the school, but generally it was off campus. It was in the school communities. The shooters that I interviewed and I found out later were kids that were known on campus. They were not part of a gang. They were not part of basically anything, whether it was a scholarship society, whether it was athletics, whether it was the band or was it the glee club. They weren't part of anything. And that was so disheartening to them. And as I conducted my interviews, I found, found it was disheartening to me as well because even though I was a had been a licensed teacher, I did not see that disparity. I did not see that despair among kids. I saw kids who were, you know, they weren't in this group, the, the hot group or the social set, but I did not see kids who felt kind of alone and kind of out of the picture. Are they good at hiding it sometimes? I think they are. In fact, the, one of the stories that made nationwide news was the kid in Oregon who packed his peanut butter and jelly sandwich in his backpack along with his gun. He had gotten a gun and then he used it in, in, you know, Oregon. 
So your, your stuff that you were mainly dealing with, although you were learning about these shootings and these murders, I assume some are stabbings, but you're learning about all these killings around the country. But right there where you are in L.A. was kind of a concentration point, I'd imagine. There was a little bit more than the national average. Uh, actually, no. In fact, the uh, prisons that I interviewed were miles and miles away from Los Angeles. And the, the shootings did not just come from Los Angeles, Los Angeles County. The inmate, the wards, because the, you know, the courts like you to use wards of the court because they were all underage. They were all under the age of 21. They were, uh, the wards of the court were in prisons, uh, prisons away from LA County, but these prisons service the entire state of California. So is there any one in particular that you'd like to maybe share and tell us about? I know the name of your, sh of your story is Teenage Killer. So are we going to hear about uh, boys or girls in this story? I interviewed both. I interviewed both genders, uh, male and female. The girls were a little bit more articulate, a little bit more uh, revealing in their comments, generous with their statements. And they would share their emotional feelings if, if they felt bad about what they did. It may have taken a period of time and it may have taken counseling from the professional counselors in the prisons, but the emotional feelings were nonetheless real. And as I got to know them, because it ha I have to say that I interviewed boys and girls, the same ones in my 103 group several times to make sure I was getting the truth. That's why it took four years to do it, because I had to repeat my interviews with these kids over and over. And we always started where we left off the previous month or the previous 60 days. We, we, I said, you know, the last time we were that I was here two months ago, we talked about how you felt that such and such was getting more attention than you. And you really couldn't do anything right, either at home or at school. And you just felt as though nothing, nothing would work for you. Can we review that to see if anything has changed since I last talked to you? And that's how I would start each new session with them by reviewing where we stopped at the last time I investigated, excuse me, not investigated, but interviewed them. So just for the sake of anonymity, let's call all the boys that you want to share their stories. Let's call them Jacks and let's call all the, the girls Jills, so to speak, because that goes with the, with, the, with the book that you've written, right? That sounds and, and when I think of somebody that's a killer, I know this sounds crazy, but I used to watch Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Did you ever watch that back in the day? I ever? Did. Robert Stack. They would always show a mugshot or a picture drawing, right? A pencil drawing. And I swear all the guys look like they had this evil, dark stare. But when you're telling me about these kids, I'm picturing some of them looking crazily innocent. Did any of them look like little angels that from the outside you would never suspect? Or did some of them maybe have those dark eyes that kind of look like there's nothing behind them, you know, except for, you know, bad stuff? Give me an idea of what these kids look like on average, if you could. Actually, it's, it's the first picture you painted. A little innocent angels, even though you didn't say innocent as an adjective, you said little angels. And that, that is more apropos than kids who, I didn't have any kids who gave me that vacant satanic stare. I, I, yeah, satanic, that is a great right. word. It almost looked like an evil that was like from another area, not, not from earth or whatever. Right. So, what I did find out though, is that the girls were more voluble 
the girls were more willing to talk. With the boys, sometimes it took a third interview before I could get their trust. Okay, in that in that case, let's start with a Jill. When I'm thinking of okay. a Jill that kills, I'm thinking of somebody that maybe at home they were being abused or molested. Uh, but but I'm assuming that that's not always the case. Is there a Jill in mind that maybe you could tell us a little bit about her story? As a matter of fact, it is one such Jill wanted me to expose her. Wanted me to expose her name publicly. She felt so guilty. And I said, I can't do that. She said, I feel so bad about what I did. I killed that lady, so on and so forth. And I said, well, you know, you're, you're serving time here. So you're paying back, at least in some part, society by serving time. Oh, that's not enough. That's not enough. I'm, I'm trying to recall what she said. So I may not be accurate in my, my recall, but basically she was saying that she wanted to do more. So she felt that the more it would be if I, in my dissertation, I gave her real name and I said, I cannot do that. I said, for a number of reasons. I said, the chief reason, however, is I cannot be a party to sacrificing your future. You're going to serve here until you're age 25. That's why it's called juvenile life. It's a long time because you've already been here eight years or so. You have a number of years to serve, but it's still an opportunity when you get 25, it's still an opportunity for you to be released into free society. And you've had abundant counseling here. You know what's right, what isn't wrong, and you'll have a job. None of that will take place, however, if your name is exposed. Your record will probably be closed. You'll have a, an opportunity that few will not have few who recommit and recommit. Now, if you recommit something, then of course, you know, the sky falls down on you. How many people did this particular Jill kill? She was responsible for, I'm hesitating because it was one lady. It was an elderly citizen and she turned the volume up on, she turned the radio on so that uh, nobody would hear the lady screaming. She was robbing her house. And she was, she was, you know, on a tear. She was angry. She was furious and she didn't care about hurting anyone. Now, when you say she was robbing a house, was the initial, uh, initial intent, excuse me, to just rob the house or was the music kind of showing premeditation that, Hey, when I'm robbing this house, I know this lady's going to freak out and then I'm going to take care of her by silencing her permanently. Was there that type of evil intent behind what she's it, doing? It, exactly. The, la the latter depicts it perfectly. There was evil intent. There was premeditation and instinct for doing some kind of premeditative protection, so to speak. So now, Jim... Jim, when I was growing up, you heard, you remember our parents would say that girls are made, well, my parents, my mom would say girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. It sounds like this girl's made of stuff that's not so nice, right? Not so nice. And unfortunately, that's the picture in most of America, well, in all of America's youth prisons where girls and boys are serving time for having committed murder and homicide. They were not nice kids. They were alienated. They felt isolated. They felt the world was against them. And their, their world started with their family. 
So that was their world. And then it expanded to the outside school where they were six, seven hours a day. If that didn't go right, and after a number of months, weeks and months, and possibly years in which that didn't go right, then they really started feeling um, isolated and out of everything, out of their family and out of school. This lady that was killed, did she have a product such as jewelry or a safe with money in it that maybe the girl knew about in advance? Was there a, a reason to the robbery portion of, of her going to this lady's house? She never gave me a reason. She basically came across as a person who was aimless, kind of wild, aimless, and wanted to get some kind of self-satisfaction, uh, uh, and a high to me and you, and, and abnormal kind of satisfaction, making somebody else sh share the pain or feel the pain. So in other words, tra transformation, right? Or, or transferal. You want to make yeah. somebody else feel as low as you do. Yes. We're going to take, we're going to take a super quick break to take a commercial. When we get back, let's delve a little bit more into uh, what's in going inside this, what's inside this girl's mind. So we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Would you like to host your own radio show? Jesse Jameson is an executive producer with the Voice America Talk Radio Network, the leader in live and on-demand internet talk radio. Jesse serves as executive producer to over a dozen shows on our network. If you'd like to connect with Jesse to be a guest on a show, do some advertising, or even want to talk about hosting your very own show, give him a call at 480-553-5719 or email him at jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's 480-553-5719 or email jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. When it comes to financial planning, most of us would probably rather have a root canal. Math, budgets, keeping ourselves and our loved ones secure after retirement, planning for retirement, risk, reward, and the like. How do you find the answers you need? Tune into Fiscal Fitness with John Grace and co-host Daniel Medina. They'll help you feel more secure in your investments and your future. Listen every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are lots of unanswered questions about life's problems, and this is especially true about spiritual life. Why can't we see God? Why is there evil in this world? Why does God let bad things happen to us and to others? Can we get divine help? Join Carl Mollison and co-host Brian Kelly for Get Wisdom. They have new answers from the Almighty you need to hear. And listening could definitely change your life. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you tired of feeling disconnected and shut down? Since every choice has ripple effects, lasting happiness is a product of the choices we make each day. Tune in to Rise and Shine, not just for mornings anymore. 
Lorianne Rising and Uncle Mark Olmsted introduced you to authors, musicians, artists, and innovators, all actively engaged in designing a world that works for everyone. Make sure you're along for the ride, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. for tuning in to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Do you have a super short story that you'd like to have Jesse read on the show? Simply email him. You ready? It's jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. And who knows? Jesse might just read your short story on a future show. And now, back to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Jim, before we left, we were talking about how this girl looks somewhat innocent, almost angelic, right? But she's telling you this heinous story of how she turned up the music, went into this woman's house, and killed her. I'm thinking that the woman was probably a vulnerable, maybe elderly type, uh, but at the same time, the person could have been a number number of types of individuals from, you know, very petite or what have you, to maybe even mentally ill, where she's you know, not necessarily able to move well if she's physically ill or mentally ill. Uh, the floor is yours. I'll give you I'll give you back the mic here. You're right. You're right. Um, what's striking and, and all the kids that I interviewed, and this is probably true for every researcher who's doing social research in in terms of conflicts, in terms of alienation and isolation of juveniles is her aimlessness. Many of these kids wasted tons of time. They were aimless. They apparently had no clear-cut, well-defined goals. So they, the ones that I interviewed always wanted to feel better, and to them, feeling better encompassed a thrill, a thrill that they brought about by themselves, a thrill that they executed. I shouldn't have used that word because they literally executed. Things. Right, right. So in the execution of this thrill, she found this lady lived alone. I, I can't say because we didn't talk about that, whether she cased this house for weeks at a time, whether she studied her would-be victim, I don't know. That's interesting that you mentioned that though, Jim, because if I were trying to kill somebody, hopefully I'll never be in that situation ever, right? You won't. But if I were, what you have to do ideally is find the perfect victim. So based on your talks with this girl, did this lady that she ended up killing, did was it kind of a perfect scenario? Here she is. She has nothing better to do. She's got all this inner rage and anger. It was an unexpected perfect scenario. And she made it perfect when the lady surprised her by shouting and screaming. And that's why she turned the TV. I can't recall whether it was a TV up as far as we'll go or the radio. I want to say radio, but however it was, it was the audio system, whether it was TV or radio, that she turned up to its full volume blast. And then she proceeded to do what she, she wanted to do. We, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that's one thing, you know, uh, I have a daughter. I don't know if you have any kids or nieces and nephews, but, you know, we all have young people that we know. I have three kids. Right. And a lot of times people think, oh, I want to live on my own. I don't need a roommate. I don't need this. Right. And there's people with roommates that get killed by their roommates. Sure. But you do take a little bit of a chance when you do live alone, especially if maybe you don't stay in contact with family and friends, which there are a lot of loners out there. Um, I would imagine this lady was just thinking it was going to be a regular day in the neighborhood again. And all of a sudden, she's got this young girl in the house. Was this young girl kind of petite or was she super athletic 
And did this happen with a gun or a knife? Do you know? When I met her, I didn't even get, and I should have, I didn't even get into what did you do? What sports did you play at school? If any, did you, you know, were you athletic inclined? Did you go off for any teams at all? Baseball, uh, dance, whatever, you know, you know, basketball. I didn't get that. I, I was so intrigued with them spending more time away from school, many of them, than in school. And basically marauders in society the ones who killed someone on campus, uh, there was one, but they were, they were in the minority of the, the kids that I interviewed. Most of the kids who were serving juvenile life killed someone off campus, in the streets, in society. The, the, the kid who put his peanut butter and jelly sandwich in his backpack with his gun, his dad's gun, he went to this, uh, I want to say Portland, Oregon, it wasn't. Portland was another city in Oregon, and he made national headlines uh, with what he did, unfortunately. He was so angry at the people at school. He was um, just mindless with his anger and totally, totally out of control. Most of the kids you spoke with, did they come across as hyper-intelligent or maybe they didn't really care about, you know, learning as much because again, for a person to even contemplate killing another, I'd imagine you got to come up with some sort of game plan. I know the first Jill that you discussed didn't necessarily mm -hmm. have a game plan as much as it just kind of happened on a whim, but with the kid in Portland, to your knowledge, did he maybe have a game plan of I'm going to take my dad's gun and I'm going to get enemy number one or enemy number two, or, or can you give us any insight to maybe their intelligent level, intelligence level? He was very intelligent. He was taking not only, you know, regular classes, but he was taking higher mathematics as well as language classes. His dad was a teacher. His mother was a teacher. And to you and I, he probably had a privileged life, absent disappointment, absent depression, absent wild, uncontainable anger, and that nothing would be further from the truth. And nobody, including his parents, saw that coming. Nobody. And he went to his society, which is at camp. Remember, he was very scholastically oriented. So his society was unlike the girl that you and I have been talking about for the last five minutes or so, wasn't the streets. His society was right on campus. And he went to that society and unbeknownst to the student body, this kid was enraged and he pulled out the gun on his backpack and he started shooting. Oh, that's interesting. So this is one where the first girl, she goes into a woman's house and victimizes a, a woman in her own home. Yes. This kid is a kid who I've met kids who their parents are teachers. They're, they're usually the, the really mild mannered kids. I, you never really think about it, but a mild mannered person might have an inner rage. It sounds like this Jack did have an inner rage. How, many, how, 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 how many victims did he end up shooting? Oh, it was, it was nationally reported. I want to say five. It may have been seven. It, I think it was five. And you, you hit on something, Jesse, about the, the inner rage. A, the cruel irony of it is that 
people like you and me who are adults and who have <clears throat> authority over kids, whether it's an intern in your you know, radio station or whether it's a kid who's in a seat in the class that I teach, we miss that inner rage. We miss the signs and symptoms. And that's why the Parkland, Florida shootings of a couple of years ago, or the Sandy Hill shootings, were not even suspected, were not even seen before they occurred, is because all the signs and signals were missed. Hopefully now, with cell phones, and hopefully with apps, and with face, facial recognition technology, hopefully kids who used to go to that school and who come back to seek revenge, hopefully facial recognition can alert the main office that, you know what, we expelled him two years ago. He's not supposed to be at any school in the school district, not just this one, but any school. And he's back. Many of the front offices, and this is by no means any criticism of any front office or main office at, at a school, whether it's elementary, middle school or high school, just does not criticize the fact that males, when they're 15 years old and who are kicked out and who come back when they're 17, they're growing beards. Their hormonal level is now suggestive of, of manhood. Many of the front office staff did not recognize them when they came back. With facial recognition software, hopefully in 2021, hopefully you'll recognize those pixels will work together where they'll be recognized as, oh, he's two years older, but this is the same kid. Remember we expelled him two years ago? He's not, we can't push the button to open the gate for him. He's not supposed to be on campus in any of our schools. Jim, occasionally I'll meet a guy like a, like a man or even a woman and in talking to them, they'll seem normal 80, 85% of the time, but one-tenth of the time they seem a little off, you know, almost, almost like they've got a, a mental craziness about them. And there's something inside of me that just says, you know what, I'm not going to go hang out with them outside of work, right? I don't want any of my coworkers to think I'm thinking that of them because I work with the nicest people and I'm sure you work with a lot <laughs> of nice people that you would love to have a beer or a piece of pizza with, right? But exactly. occ occasionally I meet these people. Now, you said with these kids, a lot of times you can't see it, but if you had a 10-year-old in school now, and maybe you do, you said you have three children, right? But they're, they're all grown. Right. <laughs> my, my, I, I have two adults yeah. as well. But if you had a 10-year-old in, in school now, would you tell them, hey, if, if Joey starts acting a little weird or when you go to his house, he's playing with his dad's gun and stuff, I don't want you hanging out with Joey without me. Is there any type of sign or, or advice you would give your 10-year-old son today, Jim? I think so. What I and that's a, that's a good example using Joey, who's a close friend of his, the fictional Joey, close friend of his. That is one example. That that could be example B. Example A could be just a general discussion repeated a few times until your kids get it about social groups. Anyone in in this social group who's acting a little what do you mean, Dad? A little weird. So you give them a couple of examples of weird behavior. Oh, I said, oh, well, that's you know, Joey does that kind of. <laughs> Versus, that sounds versus, like Joey. Yeah, versus focusing on Joey first. Joey's part of the equation, but he's not the A part. He's the B part. First, we start with macro, and then we condense into micro. The reason for that is because we don't want to give our kids the wrong. We don't want our kids to start looking for 
the social outcast on campus. The best thing in school, whether it's elementary, middle school, or high school, is teachers giving kids all the support, acknowledging them, giving them extra time for an assignment, but being, being their friend away from home. That's one of the best things we can do is to trust our kids so they can trust us. Giving kids cues on bad behavior can work against other kids because our own kids can be wrong. They can misidentify. They can think, you know, my dad or my mom was talking about that over the dinner table. And boy, they're, they're going to be problems, that kind of thing. And that's where it's a catch-22. We can't prejudice kids. We can't give kids information where they then prejudge other kids. Well, how do you stop campus violence? You can have responsibility assemblies where you talk about it in an assembly instead of just talking about ticket sales for the next game or pep rallies. That can come later. But the most important part of it, even now, after, you know, during COVID or after COVID, even now, we need to talk about school safety much more than we do on campus. It used to be not so long ago, the word school safety, we felt as parents and educators that school safety would scare kids. Well, when I was when I was growing up and when I was little, I thought school safety was stranger danger when you're walking home or walking yeah, to yeah. school. Now it's now it seems like the, like the dynamic is Joey or Bobby could be ready to stab you in the bathroom. I didn't deal with that growing up in Phoenix, Arizona. But, you know, I don't want to sound uh you know, like I'm prejudging areas, but I felt like a place like LA or Chicago is where something like that would happen. Mm -hmm. But that might be, that might be wrong as well. I'd imagine 99% of kids go through school, no matter where they go through to school with, with very little issues or problems. So we're talking about the minority, the one percenters here. Good point. Good point. And you're right. Very, most of the kids do go to school with very little problems, if anything, or problems that to other kids, oh, that's not a problem. You must be kidding. Let me tell you what I go through kind of thing. The other part of that is the school shootings cannot be, as you know, better than me, cannot be restricted to just inner city high schools or middle schools or inner city schools, period, public or private or charter. Parkland was not an inner city school. Columbine. Jefferson, I was going to ask you, Col Columbine was with the trench coat kids, yes. wasn't it? Two kids. Mm -hmm. Right. And that looked like a predominantly white school, right? With probably rich Coloradans or whatever. I don't know if they were rich, but it was, it was definitely a progressive, I think, affluent. Affluent. Area. That would be the word I'd yeah, be looking yeah, definitely. for. Definitely. But those, those are parents that are sending their kids to school thinking, hey, we don't have to worry about those problems that they have to worry about in Detroit or Chicago or LA. Boy, were they wrong. They were wrong. And if they thought that, but I can't bring myself to think that they would have thought themselves better, that any school thinks itself better than what's going on in, let's just say fictionally San Francisco or Long Island or Newark, New Jersey, or <clears throat> excuse me, Columbus, Ohio. What has happened is that I think among the things that we have missed as parents is a frank 
open, candid discussion about school safety and what that means. And that we frankly tell kids, there are fighters who will come on campus and hurt you. There are people with guns who will come on campus and hurt you. And unfortunately, many of them look like older versions of you. In other words, you can't really tell from the outside. And if they have a dark inside, it's not like you really want to delve into that either, right? So you just have to kind of do your best. Because the reality is if somebody really wants to go out of their way to hurt you, whether it be with a gun or whatever, they're probably going to be successful. There is a certain bit of, Look at Parkland High School in Florida. Look at the elementary school in Sandy Hook. We're going to take another commercial break, but Jim, one of the things I'd like you to think about as we go into the commercial break and when we come back for our final segment is maybe about things like molestation. You know, occasionally we hear stories of kids being molested, whether it be at home or at school, and I assume sometimes that leads to rage and pent-up frustrations as well, uh, you know, feeling, you know, kind of really small in the world, like you don't really have a, much of a say. So mm-hmm. when, we, when we come back, I'm going to ask you a little bit about that and see, uh, see okay. if you've dealt with any Jack or Jills that dealt with that issue. So we'll okay. be taking a break and then we'll be right back with Jim. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Would you like to host your own radio show? Jesse Jameson is an executive producer with the Voice America Talk Radio Network, the leader in live and on-demand internet talk radio. Jesse serves as executive producer to over a dozen shows on our network. If you'd like to connect with Jesse to be a guest on a show, do some advertising, or even want to talk about hosting your very own show, give him a call at 480-553-5719 or email him at jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's 480-553-5719 or email jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. Have you ever been interested in technology or the application? Technology is always changing, and there is definitely a place for you in it. Listen for Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. Sharon and her guests teach you the skill set and present resources that help you incorporate and enhance technological know-how in your current career, as well as prepare you for future success. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. for tuning in to Jesse Jameson and Friends. Do you have a super short story that you'd like to have Jesse read on the show? Simply email him. You ready? It's jesse.jameson at voiceamerica.com. And who knows? Jesse might just read your short story on a future show. And now, back to Jesse Jameson and Friends. 
Jim, we're back. We are back. So the first person we talked about was on a whim. Girl sees a woman that for whatever reason, she was going to be the victim that day. And she was, she was successful at it. And you told me that girl looked somewhat angelic and a person would have never guessed from the outside. The second person was a Jack from or the Oregon area. His parents were both teachers. So you're thinking he grew up with the right, the right circumstances for success. But one day he goes to school and he ends up shooting five to seven of his classmates, whether he knew them or not. You know, he probably saw those kids every single day and they probably saw him. Yes. What, I, what I'd like to ask you now, because I know you've dealt with, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of these kids, or at least had the ability to, to reach out to some of them. Were any of them victims of either bullying or maybe, you know, molestation, whether it be from an older sibling or a parent at home or, or a classmate or a bully at, at school? Did, did, were, were any of them kind of revenge style killings? Not that I know of. And uh, to tell you very frankly, before I could get permission from the uh, California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation, it took two years to get permission. And it was contingent, full permission to go inside the prisons. It was contingent upon my not asking that question. In fact, the director of research at that time said, um, you know, Mr. Shaw, he said, you know, you're probably the only person. And, and there's almost like a leer in his voice, even though I never met him physically. He's like, you know, you're the only person in the nation who's going to be doing this kind of research. And one thing I need to ask you is don't please don't ask any questions about molestation, because if you do, then we have to investigate that since we're mandated reporters. We would have to invent. We mean. California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation would have to investigate the background of every kid that I interviewed to see if, in fact, there had been prior molestation. So, so let me let me ask you another question. Let's take it to the adult stage, because I know that you've done some stuff and we'll talk with you about your books and what have you right here and right now, because I find that extremely interesting as well. You see these situations going around the country with, you know, these cops that appear to be out of control and, and they do these things to people uh, of, of color, whether it be the brown or black community. I assume some are validated and can be validated, their actions, right? But there's some that definitely don't seem validated. Do any of these things kind of stem from the childhood? Because I heard that with Derek Chauvin, this cop that's on trial now for the George Floyd murder, he dropped out of high school got a GED. And most people, when they drop out of high school, it's not because they plan on going to college quicker. You know, it's usually because stuff isn't working for them in the high school area. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. And maybe if you could share a little bit about what you're working on in the adult portion of your life. I, th I, th I think what you're saying is valid. And I also think that police departments and colleges that have police science classes need to hear what you've just said and form educational criteria around that. Even if it's just one course, they need to look at because you're serving, you're protecting and serving others. In fact, to serve and protect was a model that was developed by the Los Angeles Police Department in the 50s that so attracted the nation that a lot of states started, I want to say plagiarizing it, but they took that slogan as though they invented it. I don't, I don't think they got any 
you know, a retort or any anger spewed at them from LAPD. I think LAPD was proud to tell you the truth, to protect and to serve. But if you look at what that means, that is, that's, that's a pretty high standard to protect and to serve. Those, those twin statements is a pretty high standard. Couple that with your question in terms of what about the background? What about because we all have background that influences our foreground. Right. My upbringing influences Jim Shaw today, even though I am far removed by decades from my up, up, upbringing. Excuse me. It is permanent. It has a permanent stamp on our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior. And you're saying something that I wonder if a lot of people recognize. He had a GED. Nothing wrong with that. The, the general equivalency diploma, which is equal to your high school diploma, the Army accepts it, the probation department accepts it, the sheriff's department accepts it, and the police department accepts it. And colleges. You can go to junior and, college and, and, and start exactly. start your college credit career and get, get a master's, you know. Exactly. So, it, so it doesn't it doesn't mean that someone is spoiled or, or dispoiled or someone is <clears throat> off course or somehow is gonna be an evildoer in the future. It doesn't mean that at all. What it could have meant is that this person's uh, show ends uh, childhood, and I don't know for say, but could have been such up and down, up and down that he really couldn't trust e- either his family or whatever. So he became antisocial. And a lot of that probably was harbored. It probably was harbored and hidden and projected. Yeah, because you can't be president of the student council and captain of the football team and be dropping out. It doesn't really add up, right? And what's goes against the grain. What's interesting, because I was kind of looking up, because I've been watching this Chauvin Floyd situation on HLN every day, Jim, is I found out that Chauvin's wife uh, filed for divorce two days after this murder. I don't think anybody in the country knows that, but what that tells me- yeah, they, what that what that tells me is that 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 might have been that final straw that said, "Screw this, I'm getting away from this guy." Exactly. And of and of course, nobody's really talking about that. Yeah, nobody's really talking about that. Nor are they talking about the need for police to feel what the community feels and let that be one of the many guideposts that police have to honor and recognize anyway to do their work. When they're in the academy, there are lots of things they have to learn. There are lots of things they have to digest, if you will, and make <clears throat> and, and make it almost seamless so that it's automatic. If I were a police officer and, and I pulled Jesse Jameson over, I should not have to think about treating him with respect. It should be automatic as though he went to my church or temple or to Sunday golf at, at the, the local range kind of thing. And this is what we're looking at. We're, we're looking at police who occasionally through no fault of their own, just view the communities that they serve as separate from them and as enemies or potential enemies, and that's bad. What's worse is to view them as potential enemies because of the color of their skin or their national origin or their religion. The latter two, which I don't even think they even think about. I think it's more the color of the skin. So let's say you took away color of skin religion, or even, you know, bad neighborhoods. Let's say you took that all away, right? Yes. I think that when the one thing that we forget about police is that it seems like most of the time, I don't want to say 100% of the time, but I'll say 75, 80% of the time, 
They're answering domestic violence disputes. They're answering people that have just stolen or robbed or maybe somebody that brandished a gun, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think you could get to the point where it's like, oh, just another day at work dealing with the bad people of the world, right? And that could really poison somebody. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I think, yeah, I, I think you're totally right. And I think that there's got to be a checkup from the neck up. And what I mean by that is police need, reg I think, need regular training. It's almost like in the military where you do, you, you work in black ops and then you're pulled in and you're briefed or debriefed kind of thing. The reason for that is so that you can keep on an even keel, but also so that you individually are right or corrected if you're, if you're drifting to keep you from drifting. And I think the police, and by me saying this, I, I hope no officer in the nation who's listening to your show feels that I'm saying that they don't. I'm just speaking in a generic term because I, I sent you, for example, I, I sent you documents on police departments that are doing it right. Pinellas County in Florida, Polk County in Florida. They've had incidents of sexism, racism, where he, high up management person was scrawling racial terms on a tablet on his desk, as well as pornographic figures. They fired him and then they called the press to let them know what they did. That is as good as it is rare. Most departments don't do that. And again, I'm not casting aspersions on departments because each department handles discipline the way they feel is necessary. But this law enforcement agency in Florida came, you know, front and center and let the public know we don't tolerate that. And it didn't take them a year to do that. They did it just like that. And so that, that's, only, that's only one example. So James, tell me a little bit about LEASE. LEASE is an acronym for Law Enforcement Assessment Survey Evaluation. The reason I wrote LEASE is because one, I think we need law enforcement in the nation. I'm against the defund the police. In fact, I'm, I'm happy that it only was a chant that lasted a couple of weeks, maybe a month. If we defund the police, we have no protection. Communities, unfortunately, are not perfect. Neighborhoods, unfortunately, are not perfect. People who, who inhabit communities and neighborhoods themselves are not perfect. We don't want to be the victims of an imperfect person who's not thinking correctly or who's not thinking properly. So he or she breaks your window. Usually it'd be a, a male. There's, there's very few female predators, but there are some, particularly if they're in league with a, a gang or in league with someone else. And I think police officers need to, especially since there are all kinds of agencies that are researching police brutality, the Pew Charitable Trust, for example, published their findings on police brutality, the in, in, NAACP, NAACP, the American Civil Liberties, American Civil, Civil Liberties, ACLU, investigates police brutality. There has to be a change, and it has to be a change that is rooted in and foundational with how does the community feel about what I do as a police officer? One way, certainly not the only way, 
One way is to conduct a survey. Ask them how they feel, just like corporations do. There's no corporation, whether it's Nike, Prudential Insurance, Bank of America, Chase Bank, or real estate firms that do not want to know how you felt about customer service or lack thereof. And they'll send you a survey. Some hold you on the phone and say, after this phone call, would you be willing to take a two-minute survey? I hate when they do that. So, Jim, (laughs) let me ask you a question. There's a lot of people that say, hey, if you're not really talking about solutions, then you're just adding to the problem. So, that got me to thinking because I'm a thinking man's person, right? Yes, you are. So my thinking is, why don't we make it in the future where instead of these horrible for-profit prisons that actually make money by having more people in the prisons, right, which leads to people getting arrested for marijuana and stuff that I don't even think they should necessarily be arrested for, why don't we set, why don't we set up more homes where they can deal with house arrest? And the reason I say that is because so many of these deaths happen because somebody does something with a, like in George Floyd's case, Uh, a counterfeit $20 bill, something that's very small in the big game of life. And then where George Floyd didn't run, you know, there's a lot of of people that would get in their car and take off. And all of a sudden they're on a high speed chase. They hit another car. People start dying and getting killed Mm -hmm. over stuff that's relatively small. If we had a situation where people could be on house arrest more often is, is, am I crazy? I think that's, I think that's a really good way to curb some of these deaths at the hands of officers or even fleeing criminals. What are your thoughts? That's something that he could, excuse me, that's something that, that can be considered definitely <clears throat> without question. But there is also the warrior cop, if you will, who shoots and kills for no identifiable reason at all. Do you remember that cop a couple of years back? They caught him on camera. The guy's back is running away and he shoots him in the back. And it's like, why did you shoot that guy? That was unnecessary. Exactly. And then there was the former cop and his son who were in a truck one day. This is about a year ago. And there was a a black man jogging and he was known to be, he was a jogger. I mean, the, the neighborhood knew him and they shot and killed him. And then they lied about it, tried to cover it up. And a thorough investigation basically debunked the reason that they said they first they weren't there. Then they lied and that kind of thing. But the the house arrests, house arrests only work if a person's a parolee. They're paroled from the state prison. And then they have to check in with a parole officer. If it's formal probation, it's usually once a week. If it's informal, it can be once a month and it can be by phone. They've got to be at home, not necessarily in bed, but at home by 10 p.m. They can't leave the county without permission. So house arrest without those strictures or rules become can become discriminatory if there's no groundwork or foundation for validating it. Usually house arrest works when a person is 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 um, been released from prison. I just look at situations and I think especially in movies and on on dramas that you see on TV there are situations where people are just so fearful of going to prison or jail 
or they just have no intent on ever going back to prison and jail, that they end up doing wild stuff such as going down the freeway at 100 miles per hour when they normally wouldn't do that. And then you end up finding out it's because they have a small bag of weed on them or they just stole a, a soda pop from the store. It's because there's always stories where the cop is pulling over the guy saying, why the hell did you run for that? It, you had a misdemeanor at most. Now you have fleeing and, and you know, and, and, and running away from the cops. Now you're going to prison. So, you know, yeah. I just I, I just look at that and I say that comes from some sort of deep, deep, dark fear of the of the of the penal system. Mm-hmm. You have a, you have about yeah. a minute minute left. Tell us where we can find your books and where maybe people can reach out to you. OK, lease law enforcement assessment survey instrument survey evaluation is on Amazon.com. Lease, L-E-A-S-E. And it, it's for law enforcement agencies. Some do surveys. A lot don't do surveys. But, and then some do surveys about what cops want. Um, <clears throat> do they need a fifth vehicle to patrol the north side? To me, that, that's okay, but that's, that's too internal. What I'm, at, what I'm asking is that police agencies do a checkup from the neck up. They grade themselves on how the community grades them. I'm not saying the community's always right, just like the weather's not always right in Phoenix. See, I'm kind of a, I like kind of cold weather. So when I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, but I have to tolerate it. Yeah, thanks, so for, community- thanks for bringing that up. I'm sweating as we speak here in Phoenix. Yeah. We, have to, right. we, we have to go. Right. So once again, that book is Lease by James Shaw. And then right. J- James, at, if, yeah. if, I, if I were to go to um, Amazon, can I still find your Jack and Jill book? And what's the name of that book? You certainly can. Jack and Jill, Why They Kill. And the subtitle is Saving Our Children, Saving Ourselves. Awesome. So listen, thank you for being on Jesse Jameson and friends and for everybody else. We'll thank see you for having me. Thank yeah, you for having gl- time to talk. I appreciate it. I'm glad we had this talk. And then for everybody else, we'll see you next week. Thanks for, for, for showing up and listening. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Jesse Jameson and friends. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Be sure to tune in again next week for another great story. Jesse Jameson and Friends is heard every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Jesse Jameson and Friends is a proud presentation of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. All rights reserved.